Welcome to session 26 of the Bible in a Year commentary. If you started the series on the 1st of January, then today should be the 26th of January. Today we'll be looking at Exodus 28 to 29 and Psalm 26. So far in Exodus, we followed Israel's journey from slavery in Egypt to meeting God at Sinai. The Israelites, while initially welcomed in Egypt, found themselves oppressed. Raised in Pharaoh's palace, Moses ends up killing an Egyptian, forcing him into exile before returning, charged by God to rescue his people. A series of plagues unfold, each targeting a different Egyptian deity, culminating in the Passover. The people left Egypt, freed by God. Upon reaching Sinai, we read as God started a new covenant with the people and provided them with guidance on how to live. In yesterday's session, we looked specifically at the design for the tabernacle, a portable temple where God could dwell with his people. We read through the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant, much of the furniture and the construction of the tent itself. Everything was made meticulously in order to be holy for God. So let's jump in with Exodus 28 to 29. In the same way that the place where God's presence was to dwell needed to be perfect, so the people that worked in God's presence also needed to be perfect. In these two chapters, we see God nominate Aaron and his descendants to be priests. But if the whole nation is to be a nation of priests, then why are a few being selected out to be priests? This is a great question, and I have a couple of thoughts. The first is that even with a nation of priests, you need a select few who are full-time, who can model to others what being a priest is. While everyone else will be distracted by their day-to-day -day lives, these full-time priests can serve as reminders of what to do and how to be. And the other thought is that God is already aware of where Israel is heading, and so he's baking into his plan a subset of priests who will continue to serve when the nation fell in their role as being priests. God then outlines the process of making the clothes of the priests, and then the process of cleaning the priest of the contamination of sin so that they can work in God's presence. From the clothing we see that there was a distinction between regular priests and the high priest. There were many priests, but only one high priest. In Christianity, we believe in what's called the priesthood of all believers. In other words, whoever considers themselves a follower of Jesus is also a priest of Jesus. But we only believe in one high priest, Jesus himself. The way the priests are dressed is important particularly the high priest. The garments prepared for the high priest had similarities with what kings used to wear at this time. The expensive materials, gold, gemstones, blue and purple fabrics, but also the breastplate and the ephod. Some have said that this ephod was basically a tiara of blue encircled with a crown of gold. Interestingly, the very first priest that we met was also a king, King Melchizedek back in Genesis 14. The similarities between the high priest clothing and that of kings may suggest that the two were always meant to be one role. It was much later that Israel specifically asked for a king, but rather than a priest king, they wanted a warrior king, 1 Samuel 8, verses 19 to 20. It was at this point the role was split into two, only to be reunited in Jesus, who is our high priest and our king. In the second part, it looks at the process of purifying and preparing the priests. As always, there's lots we could talk about, but I want to focus on one little detail, including the list of bits of animals to include in the offering. It mentions the long lobe of the liver, Exodus 29, verse 22. In other ancient Near Eastern religions, the long lobe was used in rituals to talk to gods. If you wanted to know what the gods were saying, you would take an animal's liver, open it, and allegedly by the shape and size of different parts of the liver, particularly the long lobe, you could predict the future and what the gods were planning. You hear God includes this in the burnt offerings, it's like he's saying, you don't need that bit to discover what I want. If you want to know what I think about something, 
You can just come to speak to me. Throw that bit on the fire. It's useless. Even here in the Old Testament, God is giving his people access to him that had never been heard of before. We as believers now get to enjoy that access to the fullest. We briefly mentioned in yesterday's reading that our sin contaminates us and the world around us. In this passage, we get the first glimpses of what is needed to cleanse that contamination. Moses had to take the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it over the priests and their garments. This is Exodus 29 verse 21. Because blood was believed to contain the essence of life itself, the life of the blood was wiping away the stain of death caused by the contamination of the sin. This state of being cleansed by life and free from sin and death is described as being holy. So let's look at Psalm 26. So we'll describe this psalm as a lament psalm. The issue with this is the complaint or struggle that is brought to God isn't the focus of the psalm. Instead, the main focus is the psalmist's innocence. A similar psalm might be Psalm 5. It's likely that Psalm 26 was used as a liturgy, where an individual would declare their innocence before entering God's presence. It is structured in a chiasm where the passage mirrors itself. Here is a summary of the structure, but I would recommend checking out the written version of this commentary in the description to see the structure properly for yourself. So we start with verses 1 to 3, testament Lord. Then verses 4 to 5, I have avoided wickedness. Verses 6 to 8, I love being in your presence. Then verse 9 to 10, do not count me with the wicked. And verses 11 to 12, redeem me, Lord. The psalm opens with a request to be tested. The psalmist has walked with integrity and trusted in God. So we ask that God test both his heart and his mind to prove his faithfulness. He points out here how he is kept away from those who do wickedness. He does not want anything to do with them. Instead, he pursues innocence and praises God for all he has done. The psalmist enjoys the presence of God and wants to live in a way that makes him acceptable before God. He then closes, asking God not to remove that access from him. Don't count him along with the wicked people who do evil things. Instead, he asks God to continue to redeem so that he may remain in God's presence. As many of the Psalms before it, Psalm 26 is an important reminder of the magnitude of God's presence. As an individual, one would recite these words before entering God's presence. They would be a simple litmus test. If at any point these words felt hollow, then something was wrong. If I have allowed myself to take part in wickedness, or if I no longer hold God's greatness with reverence, then I need to repent and change. 